2: Hello. Hello. Welcome. This is Amber coming to you live from the Money Pot podcast booth at Money 2020. It is so exciting to be here in this weird little yellow room recording with amazing equipment. Hi, Sia. We are super excited to be coming to you today to talk about new paradigms for fintech investing. And to do this, I've brought two of my loveliest gal pals together. Um, First, we have Kelsey Weaver. Kelsey is an investor, DeNovo Bank Board member, one of the youngest, uh, of Locality Bank in Fort Lauderdale. She's a multiple-time co-founder, including of Tech, which is where we met years ago. And she's a philanthropist who's trying to cure childhood cancer on the board of Sebastian Strong. She also advises multiple early stage companies and is obsessed with her dog, Peanut. Hi, Kelsey. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that works. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having us. Of course. We're also joined by Sia Vansia, who's the SVP and Chief Brand and Innovation Officer at Connect One Bank, a $9 billion asset commercial bank serving New Jersey, New York, and South Florida. She's responsible for CNOB and its divisions brand, public image and marketing and she also leads the bank's fintech partnerships and innovation strategy. In C's time with the company ConnectOne has grown substantially including through acquisition like their 2019 acquisition of online business lending marketplace Sia has a really unique perspective as well because she is a former founder of an e-commerce company that she started when she was in college, and she is a sparkling wine aficionado. I wish that I could be that bougie. Hey, Sia. Hi. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Of course. So, Let's just go ahead and dive in. Um, Before we talk about investing, though, I want to touch on a really amazing network that the three of us are really fortunate to be a part of. We call it the FinTech Girl Gang. Um, It started out with just a handful of us at the MX Summit a couple of years ago, has grown into a ridiculously busy WhatsApp group. And I just wanted to touch on that because I knew both of you before. We met sort of in banking circles years ago, but it's a really fun way to stay connected and meet new companies, other investors. So I just wanted to get your take on like how fun or crazy that group has been a part of <laughs> has been to be a part of.
3: I, I don't think you can talk about the the fintech girl gang without talking about it. its a fearless leader, uh, Denee Vachada, or as I like to say, Denee um, <laughs> who kind of started that entire what we'll call a movement. Um, I will say anecdotally, you know, uh, it was. International Women's Day, and we were talking about putting together a dinner, and I sent a text to the, the group, which now is upward of, I don't over over 100, easily, yeah. of some of the most incredible people that, you know, I don't know who invited me, but I like <laughs> being there. I shot out the date and a time for a dinner, and within five minutes, we had 18 all-stars saying that they were free and would join, so it's it's been a great way to know what's going on. And it's also a safe space of a a resource and people, you can ask questions, you can get um, things answered.
4: Yeah. I would say it's been, obviously it's great for networking and there's, we've always done this informally in banking and now in fintech, but I think for me, it's come through, it's been a great network. I've made great friends, but it's literally been a great resource and has come through for me in a way, you know, in, in business, we're navigating different environments, different political environments, different just sorts of things, and it's a great place to just, like, you need to get things done, and, and you have access to so many resources. And, um, I mean, I've gotten projects moved along because of this group. That's amazing. Yeah,
2: And it's so informal and casual in a safe space, which is really nice. Um, okay, so to dive into the topic at hand, uh, investing, banks, advisors, all of that fun stuff, uh, we have seen a super explosion of what I call bank tech funds. So funds that are aimed at helping banks uh, come in as LPs and invest in technology firms. There are so many of these firms these days, though. So I wanted to dive in and ask, first of all, Kelsey, what do you think makes a good bank tech fund specifically?
3: Bank tech or any fund at the end of the day, you're basically looking to find a fund that will be able to discover good fintech companies, portfolio companies, and to generate a return, you know, for their investors. But I think to your point, there are a lot of different funds out there, and so more than ever, you know, people are not logical; they're psychological. So it's table stakes that you will make money, grow the fund. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it comes down to three main things, which is value, ecosystem, and philosophy, and so just. If you're looking at the value that the fund in particular brings, you're looking at it from an investor. Do you want it because you're looking for intel? Are you looking for new products to use, or are you looking for revenue? And then as a, a fintech, you're looking at these funds and that's when you have to think about, is it about the brand? Is it about mentoring and their experience on the team um, or their connections? And you know, there are some companies that will take a lower valuation um, because of one of those things. What people value is different. Um, on the ecosystem play, um, basically you're thinking about do they know the industry? can they plug you in? how can it kind of build together into a greater value? And I think that especially in banking, it's a niche that is a little bit different than others, um, especially in the community bank space. And then the last one is probably the obvious one, but it's it's really underplayed I think which is the, the philosophy and alignment. So who are the people? at the end of the day you're looking at, you're choosing who you do business with and it's not just transactional, it's relationship. And if it's an investor, it's going to be someone that you're you're stuck with for a while. So it's making sure that you you like the people and that you're aligned with what you're trying to achieve together.
2: I want to double click on something you said before we go to Sia, which is that some people want different things. Some people would want not even necessarily returns, but access, information. Um, that seems kind of crazy because the whole reason you're investing theoretically is to get a return. So is that like a new paradigm that you're seeing in fintech investing that particularly banks as LPs might want something besides a return or, or at least as a priority?
3: Yeah, no, I think that it, it did surprise me a little bit because no one's ever offered me $5 million to get my thoughts on fintech on a regular basis. But I do think that there's banks out there that just want someone that they can trust and that can vet you know, it's not just which fintech do they meet at a conference kind of strategy. I think it's getting a lot more mature. And so they will, you know, invest to learn. And I mean, even I know like with, with Alloy, right, like the banks love to live, learn from each other and to have kind of that conversation and, and kick the tires. And I think that's one of the angles that surprised me a little bit that that, that was the, the root of their investment.
2: Yeah. yeah. So Kelsey was referring to the Alloy Alchemist Fund for folks that did not know that. See, so I no, to No,
4: I'll weigh in on the uh, f- investment philosophy because as we're, we're a bank. And so as investors, I think, like, I love what you said, writing the check, making money, getting a return that's table stakes. And so when you have a lot of funds available and, and you're picking and choosing, it comes down to philosophy. So i uh, we've invested, for example, in, in the Jamfintop Bank Tech Fund and the Blockchain Fund because that aligns with our business and what we're doing. They are partners that we would potentially work with Their partners that we, or their portfolio companies rather, that we can provide strategic insights to. So we don't want to just cut a check and be done with it, right? There's an opportunity here on both sides, whether whether they become vendors, whether we work together or not. Um, And then on the blockchain fund, same thing. We're we're one of the USDF banks. We're making major infrastructure investments in blockchain, and that that aligns with our business model and what we're doing. and, and then separately, we've said we've walked away from opportunities. I'm sure these funds will make money. I have, not, you know, I have a lot of confidence in them, but they're fintech companies that directly want to compete with banks, put banks out of business. That doesn't really align with you know, our philosophy. So I think, I think that's probably for us one of the top things we look at.
3: Yeah. And my main role, I mean, I'm director of platform, so it's about helping the community. I mean, we have a different take on, you know, building community and ecosystem within our portfolio companies, and also um, just in a more broad way, just uh, adding like value to the ecosystem. So connecting plug and play and helping them succeed, not just picking the right company.
2: So speaking of adding value, one of the things that we hear a lot is about partnerships between bank tech funds, their bank LPs, and the fintechs that they're working with. Um, are those real partnerships though. Like I, I, you know, there's capital P partnership and then there's like lowercase P partnership. And so I'm just curious, like, are these situations where you're literally coming in and like rolling up your sleeves to pursue shared activities? Or are you just like, you know, kind of paying lip service to strategic advising or things like that? Like what do those relationships actually look like?
4: So I think you get to decide what those relationships look like. And I think, you've got to start with understanding what mutually aligned success looks like. And so I have two examples. It might, it might go a little off script, but um, there is no script. Yeah. What are you talking so about? One, yeah. one is <laughs> uh, I, as you mentioned, we purchased a FinTech company called Bowfly and we chose to allow them to operate or not chose to allow them, but they operate as an independent, uh, a separate subsidiary. They're a wholly owned subsidiary of connect one bank. They have their own CEO and we've really laid out what success for BowFly looks like. Sometimes that's not always in Connect One's best interest. I'm, I'm looking at Chris Nichols. We, we thumb wrestled one day about if you know if we embedded deposits into the BowFly network, where should they live? It may not benefit Connect One, right? So so we know success look success is building as much value for BowFly as possible, and we make decisions through that lens. Um, another example is we. Um, announced a partnership with Mantle, right? And we are choosing to work with them as a partner. We made an, a direct investment in them. And so to us, we, we have mutually aligned success. And so I think I, to us, that's the opportunities we explore. We don't want to just, like I said, cut a check and then say, okay, you know, let, let, let's check in once a quarter. Um, but I think it comes down to both partners really sitting down and understanding the path forward.
3: Wasn't that the point of Finex Tech back in the day? <laughs> the idea was to help banks and tech partner um, and work together because I think it's come a long way um, from where it was. I can share um, one of our portfolio companies and that I personally invested in um, is Marstone. And Marstone is um, a digital wealth platform. And say, if they're working with, you know, Amarant Bank is one of their. Um, clients and also they're an investor and you see that they learn from each other and you see them introducing them to other banks and, and helping them succeed. And that's where like, I feel like that's almost like almost the theme of where you go back to the WhatsApp group. You go back to like the movements that are happening is people are, are really helping each other. There is more of this like collaboration going on. Whereas I think when FinTech started as the media sizzle, it was uh, as if it was a brand new thing. And, uh, I think it's getting a lot friendlier.
2: Yeah. I've definitely seen that pendulum swing when I first kind of jumped into the banking and fintech world. Fintech was like a dirty word. Yeah, <laughs> it's the like, F word. I remember the, yeah, the F word. I remember the fintechs were like coming to eat the bank's lunch and we're going to put them out of business. Right. And the banks were like, who are you? Get out of here.
3: And they're um, like, fintech is a fad. <laughs>
4: right. Fintech is a fad. Yeah. Well, Amber, your bis- totem is a great example in what you're doing, um, I think is such a great example of understand, like you you have such a unique experience on the bank side, on the, the, you know, with Alloy Labs, and so you understand the banking ecosystem. And so therefore you are today able to build your your fintech based on that knowledge. But think about all of the fintech companies that don't have that experience. And, you know, it's, it's, it's messy. It's hard to be a regulated financial en- entity. And so you have that upper hand, um, but there's not a lot of you. And so I think sort of having the partnerships that we talked about and having sort of what you know, Kelsey's done a great job with her her one whether it's a one off company or the funds or the million things that she's done, um, I think it's creating that that not to not to highlight FinEx Tech again, but that intersection uh, between the two worlds because they are gonna they are coming together and they will continue to come together.
2: Yeah. That's a perfect segue into the conversation that we wanted to have about acquisitions. So there's the strategy where you just kind of invest and advise. And there's another strategy where like with Bowfly, you're actually bringing them in as a, a subsidiary. This morning, we actually kicked off Money 2020 with the incredible Serena Williams. I got to be in the front row as a member of the Rise Up cohort. So thank you, Money 2020, for that. Um, She was joined by Takis Georgiakopoulos, who's the head of payments for JP Morgan's corporate investment bank. They were talking about their strategy for when it makes sense to acquire a fintech versus what they need to own as an institution. This is just becoming more and more prevalent as an opportunity for banks um, to acquire fintechs, but that's really tricky. We, You know, you talked about the, the compliance piece and understanding that having an understanding of each other's strengths and weaknesses is super important to working with a partner, but it's even more important if you're looking at an acquisition. So I'm curious, you know, Kelsey, you like to talk about EQ, emotional intelligence. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious about through your lens, what are some strategies that a bank considering purchasing a FinTech needs to be considering with regard to fostering cultural alignment?
3: Um, Yeah, I feel like it's another acronym that you and I know well of AOBA, Acquire or Be Acquired, is the event that both uh, Amber and I have pulled together um, from a content standpoint in our past lives. Um, And it's all about bank acquisitions. And so it's historically been banks buying banks. And what you'll notice is that most of the content is investment bankers talking about numbers. And numbers matter. And obviously, finding synergies and all of that with an acquisition, multiples, you have to know your, your tangible book value. Uh, but you look at all these stats that they throw out there and all the emphasis on that. And it's hard because, like a soft skill or, or EQ, it's hard to measure. There's still, there, there's probably more value in it. We just don't know how to actually define it. So, when you're looking at how you're, you know, an acquisition, you have to start with you know, what is the cultural, like, what is, what is the goal and what's success to each party? And I think that there's it starts at the top, but it impacts everyone. So if it's a fintech buying a fintech or a bank buying a fintech, that's going to be a culture, you know, make sure that you're ready for that. Uh, I think there are some, some of the banks that are more leaning in to the embracing kind of the fintech culture versus the, wanting them to come into the bank culture, but I think what SIA what Connect One did with Bowfly sounds like they actually considered what's best for Bowfly, not just to gobble them up and you know, put them on a shelf. Um, right,
4: we don't want to fold the technology into the bank that we are. We we saw a huge opportunity to build and grow a separate separate platform, learn from them. Um, I think cultural alignment is super important. You know, we're we're very we have a very entrepreneurial culture. We were founded by an entrepreneur and I think that synergy is really important. And on both lies end, they've seen incredible success. They've quadrupled the amount of franchisors on their platform. They, their volumes are up. They have access to every department of a bank. and so they you know and we, we learn from them, they learn from us. Um, and even on the you know we've had a number of bank acquisitions.' it's, it's not easy, you know it's, it's easy to run the numbers and I don't want to minimize all of that work. It's, it's hard, but it's not easy to close and integrate a transaction. It doesn't matter if it's a bank, transaction or a FinTech transaction. So if you don't have alignment, and to your point, if you're not like culturally aligned, it's, uh, I would argue you couldn't do it.
3: Yeah. yeah, I think that numbers are easy and people are hard. So yeah. you know, you're already trying to introduce change. So doing it thoughtfully, um, and what I think of as the X factor. So EX versus UX versus CX, you know, it's about the employee experience. Mm-hmm. And you see mass exodus when an acquisition takes place whether it's whatever industry you're in, because people, you know, the great resignation, people wanna be happy with where they're working. And if you totally ruin the value that they've built and the culture that they've built, uh, or even if you just change it dramatically, it's gonna impact the entire company. Um, and that's on both sides. So just making sure that you're, you're thoughtful to the employees and, and how you do that acquisition and how you kind of introduce it, um, I think really matters
2: like cultural, cultural alignment, culture generally is one of those words that's so hard to pin down. Um, easy to talk about, hard to pin down. So like, how do you actually start exploring whether that cultural alignment is there? Like what conversations are you having? Who are you having it with? I'm sure it depends on the size of, of the acquisition target, obviously, but any like tangible advice on how to push and see if, if that's, you know, again, just something that they're saying they're aligned on, or, you know, how do you dig into the actual bones of a
3: culture? I mean, I think you have to get honest answers, but I think it's like dating, you know, you have to go on a few dates and navigate it and see if they are the same person yesterday that you met the day before. Um, I I think a, a big telltale sign is, you know, talking to the employees, but also making sure that the narrative isn't changing based on who they're talking to. So you don't want a chameleon that's talking to one person this way where we're actually a neobank and then this way that, you know, we're going to challenge this area. So you want to make sure that people are just consistent. Um, I think that's just one of the flags that I would point out.
4: So I'm single. So I'd argue that this part's <laughs> actually easier than dating. Um, so <laughs> I think it's having some very co- candid conversations uh, around what success looks like for each company and seeing where there is and how much alignment there is. And then by the way, Take, like use your eyes. Look at the numbers. Do do the are the conversations backed up by action, data, financials? And I think if you do enough of that, you, you start to see synergies, and you also see where there are disconnects. And by the way, all disconnects aren't bad. Like we we learn, you know, we've learned from some of the banks that we've acquired or the fintechs that we've partnered with, and and vice versa. So I think some of that's okay. But the broader conversation around um, goals, success, the path forward, uh, changing dynamics is is
3: important. And kicking the tires on any hyperbole, right? On the fintech space, there can be a little bit of a exaggeration at times. Uh, so making sure that the tech works and that you're really making sure that what you're, what you're buying into, because um, it's a, I don't know, it, fintechs have to raise money. So you have to be, I mean, you know this, right? You have to be optimistic, but still truthful. And I think yeah. if you put out, here's where we are, here's where we're going, and you're honest. I think that's going to get you a lot further than exaggerating to for the first meeting to keep. I mean, again, I I do think it's like, you know, trying to be perfect on the first date. Like, you know, yeah. you're just like,
4: I, I'd almost like ask you, Amber, what do you look for when you're looking at partnerships? Like, how do you measure it? Because you have a you have a a perspective that neither one of us have.
2: So, um, just to fill everyone in, my other job <laughs> besides being I a didn't glamorous, we to ask questions. My glamorous podcast hosting gig here um, is I'm the founder and CEO of Totem, which is the only digital bank by and for indigenous people. We're very early um, pre-seed, pre-product. We're building hot and heavy as we speak. Um, my team at home is anyways. And um, when we are looking at partnerships, whether it's vendors or advisors, lawyers, um, the thing that I lean on the most is Getting feedback from people who I trust. So again, like it goes back to the fintech girl gang, whether you have a girl gang or not, if you have a banking association or, you know, some other group of trusted folks that you can go to and say, here's what I'm hearing about. So, and so like, it sounds bad. Like you're gossiping. It's not gossip. It's literally just to your point, kicking the tires and saying check back checking. Here's what I've heard about this company in the industry. Is that what you're hearing? What's your experience? Um, we also brought on a lot of advisors. Um, we have a great team called Ilex that's basically serving as a program manager, helping us get all of our compliance in place. Uh, their leader, Joyce Melman has been in the industry for years, was an OG at the bank core. So she literally like knows everyone. Um, and so having people that know the industry that we can ask for their honest, candid feedback, um, has been, really helpful for
3: us. Well, it's a balance too of being, you want to be a confident founder and leader, but you have to be able to identify and accept what you don't know Mm -hmm. and look for help in that, right?
2: I will say too, uh, one of those like reference checks, so to speak, led us to turn down uh, an investor that everyone told us was like amazing. And like every time that we'd said that we were raising, they were like, oh, have you talked to so-and-so? And And I'm like, yeah, we have. Um, And like everyone just knows their name and is like, oh, talk to so-and-so. And we did and we talked to one of their portfolio companies and the picture that we got from one of them is very different than the kind of like on the street version
3: of what you hear about them. I call that credibility due diligence Mm -hmm. or reputational. So (laughs) I think it is now whether it's the girl gang or just being able to text a friend and be like, you know, what do you think? There is a whole, Mm -hmm. I don't know, um, group of people that have been in this fintech for industry for a while since it started, whether by happenstance, we all know each other. So, you know, now it's like Kevin Bacon, but with the internet, right? Like now (laughs) it's all two degrees.
4: Yeah. Well, and then there's validation and sort of uh, best path forward. I just had someone with lunch with someone today who's implemented, who has implemented some of the products that we're working on implementing. And so one, yeah, there's validation and okay, we're, there's a lot of benefit moving forward, but then there's a lot that she learned along the way that, and she's sort of passing that along to say, Hey, don't waste the three weeks I wasted on this one thing. And so so um, beyond that, you you know, you get like those little nuggets of wisdom because we're, for the most part, whether you're a bank or a fintech, we're all trying to do the same thing. Generally, yes, we
2: are. So I'm curious. We, we think we're all trying to do the same thing. But what misconceptions are there? out there from one side to the other. So Sia, what do fintechs get wrong about banks? Oh
4: man, I think I've taken my jacket off for this one. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I, feel like sometimes I live in two different worlds, right? I, I, I'm i a banker. Um, I love the fintech space and obviously has created so much opportunity for me. Um, I think it, I'm happy to see the worlds coming together. I think the fintech space is so robust. There's so much opportunity. There's so much money. They've had the opportunity to build so many new ways show banks better ways of doing things. Um, I think sometimes fintech companies lose sight of the strategic role that banks can play one from just a you have sources of capital from banks, right? So like just I'm going to go off on a tangent. We all know quantitative tight- tightening's going on. The Fre- the Fed is shrinking their balance sheet. We have seen a decrease in liquidity and so money's going to be hard to come by. But guess who is more capitalized than they've ever been for right now? Pretty liquid, and is very interested in fintechs, banks, right? So from a from a financial standpoint, and also from a strategic standpoint, I think banks can play a huge role. And I think what it's easy to beat up on banks, and listen, we have a lot of work to do. We've got to take down the velvet ropes. We've got to like you know spruce up our brick and mortar. But um, but we've operate. We we have to operate in a world where regulation exists. At, and not only that, it's changing, right? We have changing market conditions and we've navigated these spaces before. We we continue to do that. economic. We can navigate economic changes. I mean, if, if you look at the headlines in BC because the economy's changing, everybody's freaking out, but we're, we're ready for this. We were built for this. Um, we're, you know, the politi- if the political landscape changes, that affects banks. And so we do all of this. And by the way, I haven't even talked to you about growing the company or investing in technology. And so I think that's that's a skill set that fintechs have to develop and, and you have a great partner in banks to do that. Yeah. At the end of the day, sorry, one more thing. At the end of the day, all of fintechs still dependent on our existing financial infrastructure and our existing financial system. And so like, if you wanna play the game, like learn the players, right? What is that? Are you laughing at me? I'm getting a good <laughs> lobbyist.
3: I feel That's strong. Right. I feel strongly about yeah. this. Well, I'll have, I was gonna just chime in to say I think that banks have come a long way in in embracing and wanting to learn about fintech. I think fintechs, you know, it's almost like you don't want to listen to your parents. Like, they they think they know it. They got this. They can put banks out of business. And but yet they've never navigated this, these waters before. Uh, I think there's a lot of knowledge in banking, and and there's still a gap where I don't think that maybe it's harder to learn or it's more. You know, I don't know. Um, generational where it's passed down, but you know, it's like fintechs are coming into their first you know, potential hardship in the market. And, you know, there's a lot to be learned uh, from the banks and from a regulatory standpoint. I mean, I remember like when, when fintech started, you know, they hadn't even heard about regulation. They just wanted to build a better experience because banks that they used, they they thought they sucked. So I'll just build a better app. Right. But then they didn't know any of the inner workings. Yeah,
2: Not. <laughs> yeah
3: exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah. So, Kelsey, what do you think that banks get wrong about fintechs?
3: Um, well, that's where I think that they've come a long way. I mean, I'm, I'm still bullish on banks. I'm still protective. Um, I do think that there's been a maturing in the market. I think it started as this, you know, it's not sexy. It's not all just like out there and it's not all crypto and, and, and it's not people in their garages trying to build things anymore. Um, you know, it's, a, it's definitely a matured market. So first, I think it had to be, you know, it's almost like things have to be popular and then they're useful. So it's not always the first uh, application that is what, you know, what came out with, whether it's crypto, whether it's blockchain. Some people just want to put their head in the sand. And, and I think banks have to realize that it, it's more about modernizing and it's about serving the customer of today and just using technology to create a personalized experience and a personal experience and that connection. Uh, One of the things I say a lot is that COVID uh, not only showed our need for access, right, to our bank accounts digitally, but it also showed more than that. In my opinion, it showed the need for connection. And I think tech isn't really just to, you know, replace your employees. It's not so that we can go have a a chatbot or whatever the robots in the branches. It's about how do you use technology to be a more efficient bank to you know, provide better services and with you know, with more revenue at the end of the day. So it's just about serving your customer um, and making your employees' lives easier, not all just the cool bells and whistles.
4: And I think if we look back, I'll tell you what banks have gotten wrong about fintechs. I think they minimized some of the value that fintechs created. So they saw like, hey, we do, why do I need this when I can do this through my existing core provider? And they sort of minimized the need for Enhanced user experience and sort of a better workflow, and I think it it took fintechs being successful, gaining client acquisition, sort of sort of flexing a little bit for now banks to shift their view on those things are a priority, and you do have to focus on the on the front end just as you as just as much as you do on all of the other stuff I ranted about. Yeah. Well, it's interesting.
2: I think the industry, to your point, Kelsey, has matured and shifted so much. When we were building the Tech Connect platform, we were trying to find bank-friendly FinTech companies, so the infrastructure players that are providing services to banks. And it was a slog. I remember we said there may be 300 out there and then that's it. We're done. And, um, found those 300 and things did slow down drastically because at the time everything was much more focused on those consumer direct to consumer plays and services. But I think we've seen that change a ton. I mean, just looking around the showroom floor here at money, 2020, there are so many brands that I know because they work with banks. Um, so that's been really exciting to see.
3: Yeah. I definitely think it did start with the, the B2C and, Um, I think the B2B is is just not as glamorous, you know, it's all about integrations and and those pieces versus, you know, something pretty. Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, we've got just a couple of minutes left to wrap up. So just quickly, you did mention, you know, this summer, the market for fintech investing just tanked. It was very scary to be finishing out my raise at that time, I can say. Um, So just quickly, where do you guys see the market headed in the next 12 months?
4: Um, I think it's Going to continue to be challenging to raise money. I think it doesn't mean it won't happen. I think that um, companies will have to sort of shift, shift their modeling, shift their product rollouts, shift um, sort of their, in some cases, their go-to-market approaches. I think you know we 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 take pride in being one of the most efficient banks in the country, and we have to operate that way, and we're driving that that efficiency down and we're also a high growth bank. And so I, like what I don't see in the FinTech space is, is a lot of companies thinking about if, what efficient growth looks like for them. So how can I continue to build, acquire clients, generate revenue, um, but keep it lean? Because I think that that's what FinTech companies will have to do and prove that they can do to continue to keep getting funding.
3: Yeah, I think that maybe it was more of a riding of the market. I mean, I think it was all got a little bit out there when value wasn't exactly the same as valuation. Yeah. Um, so maybe I might argue there was too much easy money in the market and the valuations were just astronomical. Um, so potentially, you know, you're going to see that continued writing. And I think that um, you're just going to be looking for fintechs that have a product that are adults that can generate revenue. There's always going to be for a company that's good, you know, that, that has a product and that has a, a great leader and, and purpose and can execute you're still going to have your choice of where you go for money. Um, so I still think that there's capital out there. I yeah. just think it's not the heyday.
4: Right. I also think Kelsey Weaver gets the, the award for most tweetable comments. I on know. This
2: podcast. That was a really good value versus valuation. Like pretty fire. Yeah.
3: Too bad I don't really tweet unless Sia does.
2: Okay, cool. Well, ladies, this has been an enlightening and very fun conversation. Like, not often do I get to host two like BFFs. So, thank you so much for joining me here in the Money Pot podcast booth on the floor of Money Twenty Twenty. The energy is palpable. So let's go out there and like meet some people. Let's yes. go get drinks. Let's go get drinks. <laughs> and that. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks.
0: Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta, and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you wanna know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Technosocialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future.
1: Welcome to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tercik with my co-host, Brett King. And this week, we're going to be talking to an old friend and longtime futurist, Garrett Leonhardt. Another story we've been talking about in the past is uh, NFTs and cryptocurrency, always a lively topic. Now, the general assumption there is that that uh, that field is dead and done for because of the big crypto crash. But longtime crypto fans know that it always kind of comes back. It's like Lazarus, you just can't kill it. Um, So, this week, a watchdog group, a consumer watchdog group called Truth in Advertising, sent notices to 17 celebrities warning them about shilling NFTs in social media without disclosing that they're getting paid. So, as it turns out, if you're dropping an NFT, uh, you'll tend to give a few to some celebrity who gets out there and flogs it for you on Instagram and other social sites. Um, Unfortunately, this is against the law, and you do have to disclose that if you're getting paid. So, those notices went out to music celebrities like Eminem, Drake, DJ Khaled, and sports figures like Shaquille O'Neal and Tom Brady, and other celebrities, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Madonna, Paris Hilton, TV host Jimmy Fallon, Wow. and of course, Logan Paul, because Logan Paul, if there's some, yeah. something bad or mischievous going on, he's probably going to be involved in it in some way. Uh, that's an interesting thing, story because that's the first step uh, before they escalate to the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, so this shows that the United States government is starting to pay attention to cryptocurrencies in ways where they're, they're trying to keep it under control. And we've seen uh, kind of an ever-evolving regulatory regimen from the federal from the uh, SEC, which has caused a lot of consternation here. And, Garrett, when we get into it in a moment, I want to talk a little bit about crypto in Switzerland because it's generally perceived that the United States has such a chaotic regulatory landscape here. It's actually thwarting the progress of the development there. But then one other thing, uh, I want to follow up on a story, Brett, that you mentioned a couple of weeks ago, which is that NASA asteroid test. Uh, folks will recall that NASA crashed a uh, spacecraft into an the asteroid DAP mission. That's right. And, uh, and the asteroid is called Dimorphos. Well, that mission was considered to be successful in the sense that they actually shifted the course of the uh, asteroid. And so um, the head of- By NASA, 32 minutes, yeah, which is the arc of- it that's right, not not thirty two minutes of time, but that's uh, a <laughs> the direction. But apparently, that that impact uh, is is three times greater than what they had projected. So it was considered a big success. And one uh, other thing is Dimorphus has now um, formed a tail. Well, that just happened since about the to impact. Yep yep, 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 yep. Cut the. All right, dude. There, Brett, thanks for jumping on me. Sorry. Uh, so NASA's uh, NASA's had uh, Bill Nelson took a victory lap uh, and said that NASA has proven we are a serious defender of the planet, which seems a little grandiose, but. It is an awesome achievement to smash a a spacecraft into an asteroid, except for the trail that you mentioned. This is a trail that is 10,000 kilometers of debris scattered through space. And of course, that's going to continue to expand forever. So three quick stories from the top.
3: Cue Aerosmith.
1: Let's get into our show. So let's talk to our guest futurist this week old friend, Garrett Lanhardt. Garrett, it's good to see you again. It's been a long he, he's, time. He doesn't look that old. No, but-
0: you know, He he's looks <laughs> in good shape, Gerrit does.
3: <laughs> I remember- so,
5: It's a good lie to do that. Yeah. <laughs> where, where are you coming from today, Gert? Yeah, I'm actually in Zurich in my, in okay. my studio. And right. I'm home for once, you know, so not bad. Awesome. And how are things in, in
1: Switzerland uh, now that the pandemic is sort of under control, or at least people claim it is? We'll see what happens. Um, are things returning to normal? Yeah.
5: Things are somewhat returning to normal. I think a lot of people are still worried about big events or traveling too much or, you know, as Swiss people tend to be much more shielded from the from the rest of the world because of our exclusive status. You know, we only have 2.5% inflation, for example. Uh, And, you know, the countries run very, very democratically with all these direct elections. And so Switzerland is a bit of an island in so many ways.
1: Yeah, but Switzerland, it doesn't mean Switzerland is entirely conservative, because as I mentioned in the opening bit there, uh, in terms of cryptocurrency, Switzerland is one of the jurisdictions in the world that's at the very forefront of innovation. Uh, You know, you can now uh, start an organization. You can start a decentralized uh, autonomous organization in Switzerland. You can um, you can capitalize it with cryptocurrency and so forth. Uh, That's far ahead of most other places, including most of the United States. Talk, Talk to me a little bit about that, because it seems to me the way I look at that is that the Swiss are taking a very pragmatic approach to the future where the Sanji, we're a banking center. This is a financial technology. We need to be on top of it. We're not gonna stop it, so we might as well embrace it. What, what's your take on that? Did I, did I get it right, or am I just being idealistic?
5: Well, you know, I'm, I'm a Swiss citizen. I live here for, I don't know, 15 years, but I, I, you know, I, I'm also a German citizen, so I became a Swiss citizen. And I think Switzerland, in many ways, is uh, a place where technological achievement and anything to do with money is on the forefront of things. Behavior change, and stuff no like here people have gadgets that do things but they don't change behavior very easily for example now everybody is being asked to go back to the office okay that's because in switzerland you go to the office you can bond with the boss and you move up in the world right uh and it's it's that is very uh, not conservative in the sense but uh not very fast in changing behavior the cryptocurrency thing has been mostly to uh, out of the fear of losing out on a new global market that has to do with cryptocurrencies. But of course, everybody knows what's happening uh, in that regard is that you know we're looking probably at uh, um, central bank digital currencies rather than independent currencies and peer to peer like Bitcoin. And the Swiss government is, is, of course, very cautious on that kind of thing. Um, so I, I think we're going to see plans for a central bank digital currency from Switzerland. Possibly a new kind of stock market, and those kind of things. But anything that's pragmatic, I think, and money oriented works here. Anything that's really risk taking, mm, yeah, that 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 takes longer. You know, we don't change behavior very easily here.
1: Hey, tell me about the distinction between Germany and Switzerland. I used to live in Germany, and you know, I'm I'm fond of the place. I'm still interested to hear about that. But but you uh, you chose to move to Switzerland. What's I, I, that I've got a good joke about I've got a good joke <laughs> about the Swiss versus the German. Mm.
0: The the Swiss are mm-hmm. like the Germans, but without the sense of humor. <laughs> <There we go. laughs>
5: that's a good one. You know, well, in Switzerland. You know, we speak German here, but it's not a regular German. It's Swiss German, completely. It's different. high German, right? That's yeah. yeah. No. Uh, that's what I thing. speak, and, and the Swiss people have five or six different types of yeah. Swiss German, which is actually only a spoken language. It's not even written, right? So you can write Swiss German, you can, but nobody does. So the Swiss German speak Swiss German, but they write regular German. Right? And the, the biggest difference is that in Germany, people are primarily perfectionists and engineers, and uh, you know they want to make things better, uh, what they already have. Uh, in Switzerland, uh, it's much more about not taking risks. Hmm. So being independent, uh, having your own way of doing things, being federalistic that is very very big thing here in many ways switzerland is a paradise as a result but also kind of a an island right mm-hmm. so for example we have all the international organizations the un the wipo the fifa here but we're not going to do anything international that would upset anybody else like like the americans right um like starting something that would be for example our own data center which we, we could easily do uh that we leave that to luxembourg and austria to uh get their fingers burned on the data center. But you know, we do a lot of things that are primarily kind of shoring up against risk. And and that is uh, the primary thing that is sometimes makes it hard in Switzerland to innovate because risk taking is left to others. Mm-hmm. And it's really just the sort of watch perfection of watches, right? But but Switzerland, you know, the Swiss watch companies would never invent the Apple watch, of course. Right. Uh they would only react once Apple does it. And the result is that Apple sells 10x as many watches as as all of the Swiss watch companies together.
1: It's interesting you bring that up because I remember really clearly um, when Apple introduced the watch around 2014, uh, I had a very lively discussion with people who are in the fashion and apparel industry. And they said, it's never going to work. It's going to be dead on arrival. You know, Tim Cook is not Steve Jobs. He's never going to pull this off. He won't be successful. And they went on and on. And you even had like, you know, the head of LMVH. Saying uh, that the Apple Watch was poorly designed and it was ugly and it didn't have any appeal, it's it, so the the resistance from the traditional accessory and and jewelry and um you know luxury market was incredibly negative and pessimistic, and uh, you know now only, they've all co opted it. You know? Well, it only took a couple of years before <laughs> yeah. before Apple managed to first outsell most major you know Swiss watchmakers and then all of Switzerland, right? And it's become this kind of global home run. How was that perceived? Like, what was the reaction in Switzerland? Did people were people angry? Were they disappointed? Were they, you know, self-critical? What was the reaction there?
5: Well, you know, the reality is that Swiss people are still doing really well with their watches. You know, we we just don't have the Chinese coming anymore and buying five Rolexes. You know, because they couldn't come for a long time, and now they're buying fancy Apple watches, but they're still buying Swiss watches too. And, and so, the the perception in Switzerland is very much like Switzerland is on on the way of becoming more connected, more international, probably less isolated. That's happening. It's a huge political thing here. And you have to remember that Switzerland, otherwise, is a true paradise. You can walk out and, and put your wallet on a park bench and come back the next day and somebody yeah. will have re- reported it and brought you the money, you know? Um, yeah. uh, and there's no crime here, almost no crime. There's, uh, very high level of income, super safe protection, direct democracy. You know, so so a lot of these things are very well worth keeping, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I but, find you know, that you can have the cake and eat it.
0: I find that interesting in that um, you know, if, if we look at economies like the US and the UK, um, you know, that are particularly divided politically you know you, you you are now the more division politically you have especially when it comes to policy and things like that the more dysfunctional you know you, you seem to ha- uh, get in terms of bureaucracy and things like that but when it comes to um, some of the big issues we're facing artificial intelligence, uh, climate change, you know, we're going to be required to get to a consensus point, you know, to be successful at at tackling these things. So what is it that drives that that consensus mechanism in Switzerland that's so successful? Because obviously there's still political conflict there, but they're pretty
5: good at resolving it, it would appear. I I would say, I, I personally believe that direct democracy, as we are practicing it here in Switzerland, has a lot of advantages but it's not really fit for the future right because here's the thing you know we have three million people in switzerland who live in the mountains who vote against anything that is progressive, whatever it is, right? Uh, and now we have to tackle climate change. We have to look at AI. We have to look at automation. We have to look at genetic engineering. Are we right, going to right. get those people to vote? To vote? No, you know. Right. And, and Switzerland is in desperate need for action on climate change. Our glaciers are melting. Mm. And, exactly. And you know, The majority exactly. of people doesn't want to do much about it, right? So I, I think this is really a big problem here. Is that uh, and sometimes we even have laws where then there's groups, you know, starting a referendum, and then they go back on the, on the law that has already been enacted, mm. right? Uh, and, you know, it's all kind of nice to have that as a principle of really strong democracy. But we have urgent pass- passing issues. That are not being looked at, uh, and I, I think that is a really, really hard thing to do when you have people voting on everything. Every three months, we get a, a stack of voting material, you know. Mm-hmm. And what's happening in Switzerland is that we are we are a very stable, very, very uh, calm and quiet society, but we don't have a future focus at all.
0: Mm. <laughs> you know? uh, so, like, I mean, is, I, is, do you, you find know? yourself spending a lot of time trying
5: to educate? people? I mean, is this part of what drives you as a futurist? Good? Yes, I do. I mean, I try to work with the government. I, you know, I'm a foreigner here uh, still, regardless of the passport. I'm more of a foreigner here than I ever was in America uh, where I didn't have a passport. Uh, That's because I just say one word in German and I know I'm not Swiss, right? Um, And and so I I work a lot. I try to work with the government to be more forward-looking, but if you remember in the book you know kim stanley Robinson's amazing book the ministry, ministry of the, the future. future yep right that that is actually here in zurich exactly. ministry on the yeah, whole, yeah. The whole Straße, which is 100 feet from here where i stand now but switzerland would never ever dare to do such a thing right because a ministry like this would be highly contentious and highly mingling with all kinds of things right and I always and, say and that yet Switzerland in, would
0: make the perfect place for it because of its neutrality, right?
5: right right. but I, I live we live in a country with our courage like this. we don't have the courage, right? And that is if you don't have courage, you don't look at the future because the future may be scary, right uh, so, and that that desperately has to change. so so then would you characterize
1: that the the things like like the initiatives in cryptocurrency that I described earlier, are those just defensive innovation? Are they just a way to protect what Switzerland's got and not lose it? Uh, you know, not not slip in the world standing. Is that what you're saying?
5: Basically, you have a city right here over the hill called Zug, Z U G, which is the center of cryptocurrency in Europe, really. And basically, what the the city has said: anybody moving here with a startup in crypto, we have we make a great deal, right? This is a defensive move, move against losing the financial uh, center of, of uh, the world being in Switzerland, right? Interesting. But, you know, it's mostly sort of just kind of, uh, you know, it's it's a little bit like, yeah, it's showing stuff, but not actually much doing much about it, right? Uh, um, and not really making a decisive step, step. Like, you know, starting a ministry for the future, an international organization, that would be courageous and needed and ballsy. Right. Uh, and, and okay. that would be quite different than starting a bunch of uh, crypto companies in Zug. Okay, True. But, but what people are thinking right now, when they
1: hear you say this, they're going to probably think, "Wait a minute, these guys are talking to a futurist who's based in Switzerland, and that's a choice that he made. He moved from from Germany to mm-hmm. Switzerland. But yet, what Gerd's saying right now is, that is it is not it, is an innovative cl- place. Why on earth would you pick that? No, no, place? No,
5: it, no. It's actually uh, Switzerland is very innovative on practical things like. You know, better chocolate, better right, water, right. better cheese, uh, and, and and a great ETH. The universities are great on this. But reinventing and actually doing what is most urgently needed right now, which is a reboot, right? Yeah. Rebooting financial systems, rebooting food, rebooting uh, education, right? That is very difficult here because rebooting is just hard, right? Okay, uh, so tell, for, us, about, for the tell us about how
1: you do that. You You obviously have a well-developed philosophy here. How did you arrive at that? What is your what is your futurist methodology? How do you arrive at the initiatives that you get excited about and want to support?
5: Yeah, you know, I spent 20 years on this now. And the beginning was mostly about technology and digital transformation, because it was also new, you know, explaining the tech to people. But after I did that for 10 years, and I've done, you know, almost 2000 speaking gigs, and I worked with the top fortune 500 companies, I realized that, you know, the the real story here is not just the financial and the business part and the tech part. Uh, that is actually very obvious now. Right? The real part is like, what kind of world do we actually want with all the tech that we have? Right? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and now I say, basically, we have all the tech and science we can possibly ask for, and we're getting new stuff every week. But what we're missing is the the purpose, right? the telos, the intelligence, the, the collaboration to solve the true problems it's not a question of tech, right? So five years ago I started shifting towards this topic of technology, humanity, the future in a larger way, right which is primarily about policy and about making the right decisions and being future fit, right mm-hmm. and and so I call it people planet purpose and prosperity, the the paradigm, right um, And so you developed this framework.
1: Right? You, you developed a framework, uh, planet purpose and prosperity. And that was part of your your tech yeah. versus humanity framing. But now you're starting something right. new. I Now you're the founder of a new
5: project, right? It's called the, the Good Future Project.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, that? I like that.
5: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, two years ago, I made a film called The Good Future. And mm-hmm. it's shot in Lanzarote, Canary Islands. And you can see it at thegoodfuturefilm.com. Um, and it's quite popular. And it's basically saying, like, look, the future is not as bad as it looks. Right now, most people have a bad view on the future, right? Pandemics, AI, automation, Putin, Erdogan, you know, story goes on. Uh, It's not looking good. If I ask my kids about the future, you know what they say? They said, the good future is all BS, right? There is no such thing as the good future. Mm. And they're millennials, right? So I made this film to say to people, look, the future is good. All we have to do is to get some wisdom about what we're doing here because uh, we can use AI for example to bring down pollution and those kind of things by 50 60 70 percent like in agriculture and, and food right but we can also use it to, be, to build super soldiers you know so mm-hmm. we right. we need to have the right wisdom and that is what's missing so I can okay. I I basically uh, started the good future project as a way of getting together with hundreds of people who are telling stories about what the good future could look like mm-hmm. Uh and where the goal is to make films about this. This is one of the key goals because films are a great medium. And to create events, both online as well as uh, events. Uh, think of something like Burning Man plus Ted plus Davos. Nice. You know, then you would have the good the good future uh, festival. That's not too ambitious. <laughs> uh okay. Oh uh, not so at all. You know. This
1: is at thegoodfuture.com.
5: We, uh, we, uh, the, we should the, definitely the, talk to you about the
1: Futurists Conference series we're trying yeah. to put together as well. That's so. right. Uh, so there's been tremendous advances recently in particular uh, in machine learning. Tell us a little bit about your perspective on that technology. How is it going to influence the world? I mean,
5: I, uh, I, I think really what we're seeing now is, is tremendous progress in uh, what I call IA, Intelligent Assistance. Uh, That means that computers are no longer that stupid. They are still pretty stupid to a large degree, but they're not stupid like they were 10 years ago. Uh, So they can actually do things like learn patterns, understand things, right? They do not have human level understanding because human level understanding involves the real world, (laughs) right, and we have uh, emotional intelligence, kinesthetic intelligence, social intelligence, you know, that's, that's a human only thing in my view. But machines have this kind of binary intelligence which is getting very useful. right? So my view is that most routine commodity tasks will eventually be done by machines mm-hmm. if they don't involve uh, human intelligence. You know, for example, uh, financial right. portfolio management, uh, radiology, uh, things like that, but it will Accounting. not make the humans, uh, it will not get rid of the humans because we still need the other stuff that only we can do, uh, the fuzzy logic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, And so the machine learning, the deep learning is often confused with human learning, which is completely different. Uh, It is basically binary, but endless. And we are multinary, but ending, you know, we don't have, it's the opposite of us. So I always say the future really is awesome, awesome humans on top of amazing technology. Um, So that we can use these tools, for example, to finally work less. Uh, and to bring down the costs of healthcare, right? Better, right? Or achieve better results. I mean, this is where, yeah, it's extremely hopeful that we can imagine that if we can make healthcare really cheap Mm -hmm. and people don't go to the hospital or the doctor for every little thing that they have and and they can monitor themselves and get smart about what they do, yeah, that should shave off like 50% of the cost, right? At least. Yeah, yeah.
3: Well, you know, this is- As long as
5: we don't cut out people. You know, the reason that I have this good future topic is because I believe the next five to 10 years, in many ways, the the shit is going to hit the fan, so to speak, uh, which means climate, and serious action there, uh, automation, jobs, AI, uh, right? That's going to be heaven or hell, so to speak, right? Uh, social justice, inequality, north, south, the climate coin that, uh, uh, hit, uh, that uh, Kim Stanley Robertson yeah, talks about. Yeah, I like about. that idea. I believe... I believe that basically we have 10 years to get our stuff together, and we will. Because I think it has been proven that uh, humans are basically capable of emergency action, you know, in the COVID crisis, for example, right? We just have to get enough pain. So we're going to get a lot of pain, uh, and we're going to, you know, I would say all this bad weather patterns and, you know, the food problem and all that stuff. There's going to be so much pain that catalyzes people into action. And then the best thing, of course, is the millennials are coming, the kids between 25 and 40. And they're saying, I've had enough of this stuff, you know, I'm yes. going to get elected. Right? And women are coming. Uh and so they're going to take over in decision making from us, basically, in, in the political sense, right? And this paradigm shift is going to play out the next 10 years. And if it if it goes according to that, I think we're going to harvest technology to actually solve most of our practical practical problems. Water, food, disease, all of those things. Right? And it could be a kind of golden era like a, 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 a Belle Epoque, you know, in in starting in five years if all that comes together. Uh, but the pain to get there will be huge because, you know, we're talking about $150 yeah. trillion dollar value shift from the fossil fuel to the green economy. Right? So lots of pain, lots of upheaval, lots of chaos in the next 10 years. but potentially an outlook of a protopia society, as Kevin Kelly says, uh, a a slowly improving march towards the good future. Um, That's my positive view. I think that it's quite likely that we can make that happen.
0: Hashtag optimal humanity. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, good. This has been fascinating. Where can people find yeah, out I, more I, about, about you
5: and, and uh, the Good
0: Future Project and, and everything else that you're working on?
5: Yeah, so my website is futuristgerd, G-E-R-D, like gastrointestinal reflux disease, same thing, right? Uh, futuristgerd.com. Don't look for GERD, you'll find other other stuff first. And my book is at uh, techversushuman.com. It's my last book. And my YouTube channel, GERDTube, here it is. I'm going to put it in here. Right, nice. with awesome. tool here. <laughs> gertube.com, Right. And uh that's where the stuff is. The good future has a bunch of websites. So the good It's free to watch on YouTube if you just look for that. And the project officially launching in two weeks, the good is already up and running and already has fifty members and supporters, including Corey Doctoroff and uh, and a bunch of other really interesting people. Awesome. Well, wow, nice. great fun. Great
1: fun to catch up with you, Garrett. I'm very happy to see you thriving in this post-pandemic time.
0: That's it for another week of the world's number one FinTech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severance, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us.
3: We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.